Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of Double Cuzzies. In celebration of Asian History Month, we're mixing up the format of the pod a bit. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with my parents and ask them all of the questions of what it was like growing up for them and what I was like as a kid. The episode you're about to listen to is the one-on-one interview I did with my dad. If you haven't listened to it already, we've also released the one-on-one interview that I did with my mom, and stay tuned for the upcoming episode when I interviewed both of my parents together. The interview with my dad was longer than the one with my mom, which you'll understand why once you listen to it. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it, but that doesn't really matter because these are conversations that I will now be able to have forever, both in my head and on the internet. So thanks dad for humoring me and on to the show. All right, a very special episode of Double Cuzzies. <laughs> so we have a special guest today. <laughs> so, Dad, thanks for uh, agreeing to let me interview you for this. Uh, well, you know me. All. I'm always happy. I know you, and uh, I knew that you would love the idea of this uh, and that you'd be you'd be game for it. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to having a conversation and understanding a little bit more about, like, what was your perspective during my childhood and then also what your childhood was like because that's definitely a piece of the story and the puzzle that I think I can't fill in because I wasn't there Um, but I have some context for just from like stories that you've told but I don't think that we've had a lot of direct in-depth conversations about some of these things so I'm looking forward to it as an opportunity to ask you these things and to get your perspective on it and to also hear your feedback too on on the podcast and everything, so. Well, I'm always happy to talk to you. We've done this all our lives together, <laughs> so it's just a, <laughs> another conversation. But I will tell you, I've really been fascinated listening to you and and Kalia talk. It was like listening into a conversation uh, about a different generation's perspective mm-hmm. on the same things that I'm very familiar with. So it's been it's been really fascinating for me, and I'm happy to do this. Yeah, yeah, great. So. I know your history, because it's my history, uh, but for our listeners, I guess, uh, can you give us a little bit of background of like, where are you from, Bob? Where where are you from, though? <laughs> but where were you but born? Where, but where were you born? But where was your dad born? And where was your mom born? Yeah. yeah. So where are you from? Well, I'm from Phoenix. I was born and raised in Phoenix. My father was born and raised in Phoenix. Uh, his father came to Phoenix from China in 1915. And then, of course, on my mother's side, on your grandmother's side, we go even further back mm-hmm. in the United States. Her grandmother was thought to have been born in California. Her mother was born in Los Angeles. And, of course, my mother was born in Los Angeles. So we're really... Our family is like six generations in America now. I think it was what grandma's grandmother was thought to have been born in a mining camp. Correct. (laughs) Correct. When the railroads were being built in this country. So, yeah, Yeah. kind of far back. Yeah, far back. Yeah. And grandpa, he was born in Arizona, but then did he go back to China for a bit? But he was born here, though. Yeah, he was born here. So, So his father... Uh, my grandfather, your great-grandfather, uh, was born in China. And mm-hmm. when he was 17 years old, he came to the United States in search uh, of work. 
Um, so he came over here and worked, uh, saved some money, sent money home, and then his intention was always to return to China. And uh, he did that, uh, but then the war broke out. The Japanese invaded uh, China, so they migrated back to America. Hmm. So interesting that we could have ended up back there. I guess we, we, we would not have. We, some iteration of us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some version of us could have ended up back in China, and then that was yeah. the plan. But the interesting thing is my father, so uh, your grandpa, was born in Phoenix in 1927. Uh, I think his family went back to China uh, when he was about four years old, four or five years old. Mm -hmm. And they lived in China for a number of years. They intended to stay in China. And part of the reason they went back to China was my grandfather had a grocery store in South Phoenix. And so most of his customers were Mexican. Mm -hmm. They were Spanish speaking. Uh, my grandfather spoke some Spanish to his customers. Uh, my father grew up speaking Spanish and English, but my father couldn't really communicate with his mother because she didn't speak English or Spanish. She mm -hmm. spoke Chinese. Mm -hmm. So the family decided it would be better if the kids went back to China and grew up as Chinese and learned the language and communicated with their mother. And so then from the ages of like, Five to... I think he was about 11. Uh, my dad was about 11 years old when he returned to the United States. And then he was in... And then he lived in America until his, the rest of his life that, then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's it. But when he returned from China, mm -hmm. he really didn't speak Spanish anymore and he didn't speak English. So he spoke Chinese. <laughs> he, his formative years were in China, speaking mm -hmm. Chinese. So when he came back, he had to get caught up. Did he ever talk about what his childhood was like in China during that time? Yeah, it seemed uh, there were stories about him just kind of, uh, there would be floods through the city and he and his friends would be floating on doors down the canals. And so it seemed Titanic like a... Titanic style. Yeah, <laughs> like a, a real outdoor yeah. adventurous life. Yeah, like in a fun way or like in a scary way though? That sounds scary. <laughs> well, I think for him it was fun. Okay, okay. <laughs> for, for his it, parents it was scary. Yeah, okay, like a flood when you're a kid seems exciting. Yeah. I guess, but... <laughs> and then, so then you grew up in Phoenix though, your, whole, your whole life. My whole and life. so what was that like? Because that would have been in the 50s, 60s. Yeah, I was born in 1954 in Phoenix. It was a very different town back then. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a... It was a dusty little place, or evaporative coolers. There was really very few houses with air conditioning. It was all evaporative coolers. Um, people didn't lock their doors. Uh, when I went to grade school, I rode my bike down a little dirt path along an irrigation ditch, you know, by myself or with a friend. No one really worried about us. Mm -hmm. And on the weekends, our idea of fun was going down to the cotton field two blocks from our house and kind of wandering through the tall cotton. So it was, it was very different because, you know, Phoenix has grown a little bit since. Just since a little then. bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit, even since I've lived here. Yeah, so. A lot, yeah. It's really changed a lot dramatically. We didn't have any tall buildings, no mid rises. We had no freeways through town. Mm -hmm. Everything was dirt roads. And what was the demographics like then? It was. Well, when I was in high school, there were. I went to the largest high school uh, west of the Mississippi. 
So my class, when we graduated in 1972, it was 1,500 seniors graduated in that class. That is a big high school, even by today's standards. Really yeah. big. Yeah, it was over 5,000 students total enrollment. Wow. Double sessions. We started at 6.30 in the morning, went till 6.30 at night. Jeez, I feel like that's bigger than a lot of small colleges. Yeah, my freshman year, I went to college at the University of Redlands, and the total enrollment was 1,200. <laughs> so, so my senior class in high school was 1,500. Yeah. Total enrollment my first year of college was 1,200. Jeez. Yeah, it was a big high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what, what was the breakdown then? Right. You know, uh, it was predominantly white. Yeah. I think uh, I counted them one time. I think there were maybe... Um, eight Japanese, six or eight Japanese students. I think there were four Chinese uh, students. There were maybe a dozen or so Hispanic students. Mm -hmm. There was, I think, one African-American student and the rest white. Isn't it interesting that when there's so few, I feel like we have a tendency to inventory it. Right, because I, I, I do the same thing when I think about my high school experience. Like, it was ve a very large school, but I can count on the number, uh, on one hand, the number of Asians, definitely Asian Americans. You know, <laughs> what you realize is it's hard to get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> when you're one of Everyone one knows of ten. you. Yeah. All the teachers spot you, they know who you are. All the kids in the school know who you are. Would you get confused for other Asians? Uh, sometimes, yeah. but rarely. You know, I was a kind of... Uh, I was a little unusual for a Chinese mm -hmm. uh, American kid. I was six feet tall in mm -hmm. high school. And <laughs> so there weren't too many of us that size. Did you read as Chinese? Did people th know that you were Chinese immediately? Oh, oh yeah. Or like Asian at oh, least? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. There yeah. was no like racial ambiguity. There was never mm -hmm. like, oh, are you Native American? Are you Mexican? Are you something? It was just like Asian or like just Chinese. I yeah, I don't think there was any ambiguity yeah. about that. <laughs> but, you know, if there was any ambiguity about what race I was, there was no ambiguity about me being a minority. Yeah. The, I mean, I did not uh, present as, as white mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. So I got... Again, for our listeners who can't see you, I can confirm that, <laughs> like Kalia, you do indeed not pass as white. <laughs> you do not present as white. Yes. No, and so as a result, I got all the typical questions. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, where were you born? Mm -hmm. Where are you from? No, I mean, where was your father born? Where was your mother born? So, you know, what do you eat at, at Thanksgiving? What do you eat at Christmas? Thinking that we were different. We weren't different. Yeah. We were, I was raised very American. Mm -hmm. And I wore um, Converse tennis shoes and blue jeans and white t-shirts. And, you know, I just, I was a typical, I played baseball and basketball and football and ran track and did all the typical things. So then what did it feel like, you know, that you're American, obviously, and you're the typical American kid, but to, to for people to perceive you as Chinese immediately and to ask you those types of questions and stuff. Like, what was that like growing up, I guess, in, in a predominantly, even more predominantly white environment and neighborhood than what I grew up in? You know, it, I guess it got a little tiresome. Yeah. Because I remember coming home from high school my freshman year and telling my mother at dinner, 
I was in Spanish today, and the girl in front of me turned around, and in the first question I had we had never met before, and she said, "So, where are you from? What are you? What are you? What language do you speak? Uh, what you know, are all you? those questions. Yeah, uh-huh. What do you eat?" Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother, my mother and father, who were both very American, raised us to yeah. be very American, mm-hmm. and my mother said, "Well, don't be." angry at people who are just curious and this take it as an opportunity to educate them Mm -hmm. uh, to teach them that people who look like you are really just like them Uh, that you grew up the same way you eat the same things you think the same way and so maybe not think the same way no no. (laughs) we can draw lines it's fine (laughs) so i i always you know i remember that and i always tried to use those moments um, as an opportunity to educate. And it didn't really offend me when people were curious about about me. Mm -hmm. I think what I was offended by was when people assumed Mm -hmm. that I was not American, Mm -hmm. that I was foreign. That you didn't speak English. That I didn't speak English. I wasn't born here. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up like like them mm-hmm. and how did you feel about feeling offended about that <laughs> well you know it wasn't back then it's funny I've, I've been asked recently whether I've experienced any racism mm-hmm. and I think there's more of it now than there was in the 60s and mm-hmm. 70s I think and if there was some distinction um, about race back then, it was rarely malicious. Towards Asians? Towards Asians, okay. yeah. I think it's more malicious now. Towards Asians? Towards Asians. Yeah. 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 I feel like maybe there is, there's always been an undercurrent of racism in this country. Yes. I mean, that's, that's how this country was built. So, <laughs> um, so that's not surprising, but I think that the consciousness around it and maybe the understanding that the pervasiveness of it and the long-standing history of it in this country, there is a little bit, a little bit more awareness of that now. Yeah. And I think that the, the Asian racism, though anti-Asian racism, has been it, it definitely has seen a resurgence in the most recent six years, six to eight years, I would say. Yeah. Um, but same same story different decade yeah i think it's just it's been unleashed to some extent in the last six mm-hmm. seven years you know where before people knew it would be unacceptable mm-hmm. to say some of the things they say well i think also to, people just didn't have the platforms to say they could say things that they wanted to say but they the amount of people that they had reached to to actually say those things to who would be receiving right. that message was much, much smaller, right. right? Right. So it's not like you can just get on your phone or get on the computer and type something and then a bunch of people read it all <laughs> it over the world different. and all over the country. So, so yeah, that's a, a little bit of like the lack of a filter. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, and so do you think that like your experience growing up as American-born Chinese in Phoenix and in the Southwest like affected or influenced how you then raised us being also American-born Chinese living in predominantly white space? 
Yeah, I, th I think I, I just followed the model that my parents uh, had mm -hmm. to raise us. They raised us to speak English, to you know, mm -hmm. be Americans, mm -hmm. uh, dress like Americans. To only speak English. To only speak English, mm -hmm. yeah. We didn't really speak any Chinese in the home. Did grandma or grandpa speak any Chinese they, at that point? They, they knew yeah, how to speak Chinese. Both of them. So it was a choice then to not speak Chinese in the home. It was. And to only speak English then. It was. Do you feel like you missed out on being able to learn Chinese and to be multilingual? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do now. And, and, you know, I think we realized that with raising you guys. Mm -hmm. We thought maybe we should expose you to mm -hmm. more Asian culture and Chinese language. And you wanted uh, you wanted to study it. So that was, was kind of nice. And part of it, too, is... When did you start to think that way about exposing us to more Asian culture? I think when language? you were little kids when you were in grade school when you were going through school we thought it would be well the, the other part of it is your mother mm -hmm. is not american born mm -hmm. um you know she was she's chinese but born in malaysia and she speaks chinese mm -hmm. and some malay so um there was a kind of a natural inclination to want you to assimilate more of her culture not just the american culture so not exposed to Chinese language growing up for you, but what was your exposure to Chinese culture growing up? Oh, it was, uh, I had a lot of exposure mm -hmm. to Chinese culture. I mean, I, I was fascinated by uh, history. I was a history major in college, but I was always interested in history, and in particular, our family's history. So I'm you know, pretty well acquainted with the details of uh, my grandparents and great-grandparents and their migrations to the United States and how it was done and when it was done. Mm -hmm. um, my mother, who was uh, really my best friend all my life, she was uh, really interested in Asian culture, all, all kinds of cultures. And so we would often talk like this mm -hmm. about Chinese culture, Chinese history, American history. Mm -hmm. What was, I think, from her artwork, and I think maybe I didn't fully appreciate it until later in life, the themes behind it, and that she was also grappling with the Asian American identity. So, like, what were your conversations with her, being that she herself was also American-born Chinese, raised very American, but yet, I mean, even further back in this country, yeah. even fewer Asians in the Southwest. So it's like we're all just time traveling. It feels yeah. like we're all still in the same places and the world's changing a little bit around us, but it's the same questions. I think her uh, sensibilities about being Chinese American were heightened because of the time in which she grew up. Mm -hmm. Because she was born in 1930 mm -hmm. and uh, when, when the World War II was raging, um, with the Japanese, she was, she would have been, you know, a teenager, uh, mm -hmm. well, even younger than that. And so she distinctly remembers trying to distinguish herself and her family trying to distinguish themselves yeah. as being Chinese, not Japanese, yeah. because it was not a good thing to be a Japanese American mm -hmm. uh, back then. And she tells a story about how every morning her grandmother would pin a 
badge on her that said, you know, proud to be a Chinese American. And uh, she said, it didn't mean that at all. It just meant, don't spit on me. I'm, I'm not, not Japanese. Japanese. And at that time, too, I mean, and still today, I think a lot of the, the consciousness is like, it's about survival. And it's about separating yourself from the, the group that is being disenfranchised right. or targeted. Right. As opposed to trying to stand in solidarity, it's like, no, 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 I'm not one of them. Yeah. But I think maybe what we've seen, you know, how many years later, is that it's like, you can separate yourself all you want, but that doesn't mean they're not going to come for you next. Right. <laughs> right? And so I think it's like, with the prevalence of Asian hate crimes now, I mean, they're indiscriminate, too. Right, it's not, a racist isn't going to be able to tell like, oh, this person's not, this person's Chinese American, or oh, right. this person's actually Filipino and not right. and not the group that I have all of this, you know, just kind of irrational hatred for. Anyways, none of it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was it was very much of just like, well, there was also not enough other Asians to be able to stand in solidarity with. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's changed a little bit. You know, yeah. in this day and age, I think uh, the Asians are standing more in solidarity with mm-hmm. um, uh, other new immigrants to the country mm-hmm. or refugees from other countries. Because, you know, we have a heightened sense sensitivity to how unfair it was to the Japanese and how unfair it has been in the past with the Chinese in many ways mm-hmm. with the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act and the alien land laws. And so when we see the same kind of thing being repeated against Mexican immigrants or Muslims, um, I, I think our tendency is not so much anymore to try and separate ourselves mm-hmm. from them, but mm-hmm. it's to join with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope so anyways. I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> And so, do you feel like Arizona has changed? I mean, it's, I feel like it's probably changed. I'm not sure improved or not, I guess. <laughs> um, but in your perspective, though, what is Arizona like now versus when you were my age here, when you were a kid growing up here? You mean f- for a Chinese-American kid? Yeah, your just... experience. I... Th- I, it was a very different life back then. Like I say, I don't think if there was any racism, racism or distinction based on uh, being Asian American, I don't think it was as malicious back then as it is now. Hmm. Um, you know, my friends knew I was Chinese. But they knew I was American. We were good friends, and um, we would talk about, you know, our differences. And it never really was an issue uh, with people I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a little different. I think we're just maybe we've grown so big that people don't know each other the way they used to know each other. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but it seems a little more hostile. It feels like everybody is putting so much information about themselves out there, but not really ever making any real connections with right. people. <laughs> right. Not actually having a conversation with somebody. It's like you're just shouting at each other yeah. online. <laughs> yeah, it's almost, you know, we've become this, this society of it's us against them. And it, wasn't, it didn't feel that way to yeah. me when I was a kid. 
I just, I played with all my friends. I never really thought much about where they were from and who they were or, you know, what they did and what their families did. We just were friends. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be, those kinds of things seem to be an issue now, sadly enough. Hmm. Do you feel optimistic for the future? Oh, I'll tell you, the last six, six years or so have not made me an optimist. Mm -hmm. I, I've been really disheartened to see the, the regression. Mm-hmm of race relations in Arizona and in the country. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, you know, I hope it will improve. I hope it will be a better place for, for you guys and for the grandkids. But I don't know. Uh, we've, somehow we need to escape this moment we're in. Yeah. I feel like I am optimistic in the sense that I feel like the younger generations, they have grown up in this environment where it's, I mean, a reality of the planet being unlivable is within their lifetime. And so the sense of urgency to try and do things, it, I think we're, we're trapped in this moment where the people who are controlling things are the people who are not going to be the ones here to actually live through those decisions. Or that those lack of decisions. Yeah, yeah it's, it's almost as if in American politics we've set up a... We've changed the system so that it's not a true democracy. It's not mm. a majority of people. It's not a, even a representative democracy. Right, it's, it's not the wishes of the majority of people um, that are being carried out. It's the majority of... Uh, it's the wishes of a minority of powerful people mm -hmm. that are being carried out. And it's just not right. Did you ever think about moving away from Arizona? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, I did. <laughs> what stopped you? Well, I guess it's my home. It's my family. You know, we've been here for generations mm -hmm. now. And I, I once said to my mother, I don't know about Arizona. Sometimes I think it's just time to move on. And she said, but then haven't they won? Yep. I mean, isn't yep. it a place? Isn't it? within our power to change and shouldn't it be within our power to change things to make it better mm -hmm. why should we have to leave yeah so you know i've stuck around and i've done what i what little i can to try and change my small part of the world yeah yeah but it's hard yeah it's, it's like swimming upstream it's tiresome it's very tiresome <laughs> Yeah, it's tiresome educating people your entire life about your existence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I often wonder about that. I, I wonder what it would be like to, to not be Asian in appearance or a minority in appearance. What would it be like to just fit in? To just exist? To exist. To just be allowed to exist as a human? To yeah. walk into a store and not have people follow me around as if I'm going to shoplift something <laughs> or uh, to walk into a restaurant and not have people look at me uh, like I'm different. What am I doing here? Um, you know, in business to go into a courtroom and not have the sense that are my arguments being weighed uh, the same as other lawyers' arguments are being weighed. So, 
you know, or to meet with clients and wonder how they feel about uh, their lawyer being a person of color. A person of color. Yeah. So I just wonder. I mean, it, I, I've managed. I've, <laughs> I've managed for 42 years now to um, just practice and ignore that. But I, I do wonder what it would be like. Must be yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. It's like being a freshwater fish in the ocean. You know, <laughs> you know in some ways, it's there are advantages, I guess, uh, to being different. Oh, for sure. Yeah, more recognizable. Well, I think that life is more interesting. Yeah. For sure. And when you have multiple cultures to be able to pull from and appreciate, life is much richer. Because you have a firsthand understanding of, a, of multiple cultures, as opposed to even an outsider's understanding right. of it. But I think that, uh, yeah, the I definitely <laughs> I hear you on, like, it would be interesting to know what it's like to just be able to exist. <laughs> and, you know, I think the closest I've ever come to that was in Hawaii, mm-hmm. where I walk around and no, I never felt like someone was yeah. watching me or keeping an eye on me or, you know, what's he doing here? He's different <laughs> because I wasn't different. I was yeah. like everyone else. And the other place that really surprised me was um, when we were in Paris. Mm. That it's a pretty white culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a white population. But people, I never had the sense that people were looking at me like I was different. Yeah, People would come up to me on the street and in French ask me for directions. <laughs> you know, I had the same conversation with Kalia. <laughs> and I'm like, the, mo- the only time that I've ever been assumed to be from somewhere is in France. In France. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's that they just don't have an assumption of somebody being not from there. They just assume everybody's French. I, I think that may be it. I think that's a good way to go about life. To just assume that whoever is in, is in a location physically, just assume that they're from there and go from there. Yeah. I think that's fair. And I think that's, <laughs> that's what I was getting at earlier. I really don't mind people being curious about me. Mm-hmm. I mind them assuming... Yeah. That I'm foreign, that I'm different from them, and so if you start with the assumption that you're you're from here, I think that changes mm-hmm. the equation. Whenever I talk to somebody with any sort of accent, if I'm in California, I, w- I always ask them like, "What part of California are you from?" Like I know that they're not from California, yeah, right? <laughs> but it's like it's a polite way of giving them a platform to be or like to opportunity say, to say where they are right, from. Exactly. Yeah. But then also, a lot of the times, I don't ask yeah. because it's irrelevant to the conversation. If it is relevant to the conversation to understand and to know somebody's culture or to just because you're curious about it, then that's a completely different thing. I mean, now, you know, you ask how it was different growing up. Here's what, something that was probably a little different. My mother used to say, well, the sooner you can speak, you can start talking in a social setting, mm-hmm. the better. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, well, that's weird. Why? And she said, because the sooner people hear you speak, the sooner they know you're American. Yeah. The sooner they know that they can treat you at least incrementally better than somebody who looks like you who doesn't speak English. Yeah. It's like they're trying to put you on the ranking scale of how they should treat you as a person. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I mean, again, survival. Like, I think that grandma's generation it's like yes prove to them that you are american right 
and your generation of, yes, I am American. My family is American. And my generation of, it doesn't fucking matter if I'm American or not, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but yes, I am. <laughs> you know, it was funny because the, the story, you know, that I told my grandma saying, oh, I'll take it as an opportunity mm-hmm. to educate these people. They're just curious. And so I always did that. And I told you, you and your brother when you were, I think, in college, that story. Because I thought, that makes yeah. sense. And your response was, well, that was 50 years ago, so fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> you have had enough time to be educated. And, and it gave me a little pause when you said that, because I thought, yeah, you're right. You know, this is the 21st century. These people need to understand that America is a melting pot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us have melted long ago. Yeah. We're Americans. Six generations now. <sighs> yeah. Get used to it. A lot more American than a lot of other people who quote-unquote, look American. But again, that doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter how long your family has been here because unless you are Native American, you are actually not American. You're descended from immigrants. Yes. So we'll just get that straight. We're all on (laughs) borrowed land right now. (laughs) All of us exist on borrowed land. Um, But I guess, yeah, on, on that note then, like my last question for you is... So how do you think I am similar to you? And how do you think I'm similar to mom? That's my last question. <laughs> you know, I think... I, I, I was raised by my parents to be a kind person, mm-hmm. foremost. Mm-hmm. To be a thoughtful person, to be sensitive to others, to the needs of others. And I don't know whether I have been that, but I think you are those things. So if I was those things, if I was kind and patient and sensitive, um, then I think you got that from me because I, I think you are those things. Um, I, I think uh, you're a really interesting combination of your mother and me. Your mother is uh, different uh, from me in many ways. I've always admired her intellect. I think your mother is just a brilliant person. And not just academically brilliant, but I think she is a really practically clever person Mm -hmm. who grasps things very quickly. And so I think you've gotten her her mind, uh, maybe my sensitivity, and then you've combined that with something that maybe neither of us had that much of, which is courage. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, we're generally, we're pretty willing to, to do what has to be done. Oh, that's the other thing. Your mother has a real sense of duty. Mm-hmm. Um, she is what I call a grown-up. <laughs> you know, a grown-up is different from an adult. An adult is someone who's 18. A grown-up is someone who sees something that needs to be done, and they do it. And I think your mother is a, a grown-up, mm-hmm. and I think you're that too. So I think you have um, maybe my sensitivity, her intellect, her sense of duty, and you combine that with 
a certain amount of bravery and courage, a willingness to try new things and do new things and go new places and be in new uh, environments. And I think that's a, a real powerful combination of things. So I think you're kind of a... I'm biased, maybe. But <laughs> I think you're a pretty complete package. Well, that's And nice. we're very proud of you. And I think that question is loaded the way that I ask it, too, because it's like, of course you're just going to select nice positive things to highlight right <laughs> so so yeah that's a good way of asking i'll be like okay if i only want to hear positive things i'll ask that person how they think we're similar <laughs> that's a good way to do it okay well that was your compliment to me that was your constructive compliment oh, all right. that was the constructive oh compliment that's right section. you do that uh-huh. yeah so let me let me be right back okay so to close this out Thank you again, Dad, for letting me interview you oh, and ask you anytime. all kinds of fun questions. Um, and, and thank you for all of the nice things there. That <laughs> felt very good to hear. Um, and so as part of that, I wanted to give you a, not constructive compliment, just compliments. Um, and, and so I wrote it down so that I could capture everything. And uh, I think I, I, I should apologize beforehand that these kind of sound like obituaries a little bit <laughs> or eulogies a little bit. Um, but when I think about it, it's like, well, what is a eulogy? It's saying really nice things about a person after it's too late. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so it's like, let's say this stuff to people while we can. Um, and so, so dad, my compliment is for you, uh, is I wanted to say, so I wrote this as a letter and uh, I'll give you a copy of this afterwards, but, uh, dear dad, so this isn't the first letter that I've written you. And I think that's because it was you who showed me the importance and the power of putting thoughts and feelings into words and putting those words into the world. I always felt so loved by you and mom growing up. You were always so easy with praise and a hug. And I remember reading books of poetry with you, of reading and hearing you read your own poetry about our family. And still today, I have such a reverence for our family and our history in this country because of the power of your imagery. You are a romantic, and because of that, a bit of an outlier in our family. But the importance of sharing meaningful and genuine praise and words of affection with people that you love cannot be understated. I remember this every day when I tell my kids how much I love them and how proud I am of not just what they do, but who they are. And I see so much of your personality in myself. And I know the struggle and the tension I feel being American-born Chinese is something that you felt growing up. And so thank you for teaching me the importance of sharing and understanding history, specifically our history, and for instilling early in me the skills and the appreciation to share that experience with others. So thank you, Dad. Oh, (laughs) well, this has been the nicest moment I've experienced in a long, long time, maybe ever. Thank you. That's, that is... So nice. You know, uh, my mom used to say the most creative thing she ever did was raise children. It was the most fun thing she ever did, and it was the most creative. And raising you guys, I've always thought the same thing. And it has been such a nice thing to see you and your brother grow into productive thoughtful, kind, uh, expressive, 
human beings. So thanks for the opportunity and <laughs> thanks for the nice words. It's, it's, I never expected that. Doesn't it feel so nice to hear nice things? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we, why don't, why don't we, we do, do this more? <laughs> like yeah. just say nice things to each yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. It feels so good. Like, yeah. And I think that the process of thinking very deeply about what nice things you feel about somebody else, but then to express them to that person. That part is important. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, it's gratitude yeah. is important. Mm -hmm. And that's what an expression like that is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really what this conversation has yeah. been about. It's about gratitude to people who've come before us. And I mean, we all express love and emotion and gratitude in different ways. In some ways are easier for others, you know? And so I think that, but I, I do feel that being able to at least express these things in words, even for yourself in any way, is very important. And I thank you for giving me that ability to do that, I think. <laughs> um, and for understanding that it's like, that not just, you can't, you don't just need to do that through writing, you know, nonfiction and history mm -hmm. and those types of things, that there are other ways to convey emotions and yeah. feelings and beliefs um, through art, you know, and I think our, our family has done that for generations mm -hmm. and the mediums of which we have done that have just been different. Um, and I also feel like you have taken the skills that you have learned that you've acquired through a traditional stable career, like being a lawyer, which I know in a lot of cases it's like, it fits your skill set and interest, but also definitely to have stability and security for a family. And so as the product of that and the reason for that, I appreciate that. But I think that you have leveraged what you have learned and you have used that to serve your community of Asian Americans and Chinese and Chinese Americans in Phoenix. And I think that, I think that you should be really proud of that. And I know that grandma and grandpa would be really proud of that. And that they were yeah. proud of that. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. I'm, you know, I, I just uh, wanted to live a life that was worthy of the parents that I had <laughs> <laughs> and, and the grandparents I had and, um, you know, the history that our family has here. So, and I think you and Chris are doing that and uh, I'm really excited to see what your kids yeah. become yeah. and what they do in the world. Uh, every generation, it seems acquire some new skill yeah. and uh, uh, I'm curious to see what it is that they will do with their skills yeah move the ball forward move the ball forward <laughs> the wheel of progress yeah. <laughs> a little bit a little bit here and there alright well hopefully putting this out in the world yeah and having people be able to hear an Asian American father and daughter having this conversation with each other and expressing these emotions to each other. Yeah. I think that's kind of atypical, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. so. And I don't, I always wonder why, why is it so difficult? Uh, you know, I think it, 
I think with immigrants, they come over here, it's so hard for them to come here in the first place. It is survival. It is survival. Yep. And so they see um, a need to do all things in their life that will help them survive. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they couldn't go to college, you know, like my grandfather couldn't go to college, but he wanted his kids to go to college. Yeah. So they went to college and they had very practical degrees, you know, in business, yeah. education, things like that. And then our generation, it's still passed on a little bit to us that we could do whatever we wanted, but really... But really, you should do things that are going to pay you well right. and that are going to be prestigious. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, my brother's an architect, my sister's a teacher, and I'm a lawyer. And then with our kids, we try to pass on that you can do anything, anything. Uh, and as long as you're... You work hard at it, and you're disciplined about it. You can, you can support yourself doing that. So find something that you're passionate about. Yeah. And I think you still have a little bit of the immigrant, because <laughs> you went into business. Yeah. It's hard to shake. Well, you're really an artist. It's hard to shake. <laughs> <laughs> we know that the whole family knows you're really an artist. <laughs> The words just feel so loaded to me because it's like, I just think artist, I think grandma, I think painter, and that's that's the box of artists. Yeah. But I think, you know, art, the creative process is what I think she really passed on to yeah. us. You know, grandpa passed on this, the idea of business and um, um, how business operates and how to support a family. Um, grandma passed on not just how to paint and draw, but how to be creative. Mm. And so I think you kids, all the grandkids, are that. Yeah. In some way or another. Not necessarily in fine art um, or music or, you know, the traditional things, but they're creative, very yeah. creative. Yeah. Just how much we are in creative fields or... <laughs> Or jobs or roles that allow us to be creative varies. (laughs) But you know, the other thing I've learned, you can be in a very disciplined profession or business uh, role and still have a creative outlet. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I still write poetry. An outlet. An outlet. Yes. Separate from It's not your career. Separate, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not your career. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you have to. Because I think that if you are so wholeheartedly focused into this one area that isn't yours, then it's very fragile. Yeah. You know? And then it's like you tie everything and all validation to that. I think in some ways your podcast is a creative outlet. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah. I I mean, this was supposed, this was like when Kaylee and I started it, the intention that we set and that we still keep is this is an art project. Mm-hmm. I don't consider myself an artist, but this is an art project. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it definitely is. It's, uh, I, I don't consider myself a poet. I don't consider myself a writer. I don't consider myself really a podcaster. It's just, these are just words in different formats. You, you, you know, you were kind of torn between two different, very different disciplines. Yeah. It was grandma and grandpa because, mm-hmm. uh, you went to grade school right down the street 
you know, from yeah. this house. Yep. And after school, you would walk up the street and you would come to their house and you'd go to grandma's studio and you'd do your origami. In this room. Or in this room. Yep. Or do paper cuts or paint or yep. work with clay or do all those things. And then at the same time, so she, and she really, she thought you were an artist, mm-hmm. that you had it in you. Uh, she knew you had it in you, and you do have it in you. Grandpa saw you as this little business mind. <laughs> and so he, I think he kind of, kind of was hoping that you would go into business. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as it turned out, you went to business school and you continue to, to paint and yeah. work in your art. Yeah. I guess business jobs can pay for art, but art is tougher to pay for other things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I guess I'm just at the point now where it's like, can I just retire from one and do the other? <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah. Can I just pay to put myself through art school, essentially? <laughs> And not be a starving artist. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, I think that it's 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 funny. We can and I joke about it of you know when we are having one conversation of just like I don't know when, in my brain, it was like, well, I can't be an artist. How am I going to support myself? Yeah. And quite frankly, maybe it was a combination of, you know, your belief of as long as you are a productive, hardworking adult, grown up who can support themselves, then it's like, okay, you'll be fine. And so I think maybe it was that part where it was like, how am I going to support myself? And I mean, also, how am I going to support myself in the lifestyle that I want to live? And I knew that I kind of had to do it through this way. (laughs) Well, you know, for me, when I was in college, I was, I was in the writing program. I was a poet. Writing poetry, not short stories, you know, not not uh, fiction, not nonfiction. I was writing poetry, and I loved it. And that was my life. I'd write through the night. I'd write until the sun came up because I was really driven by it. I was passionate about it. But when I met your mother, or uh, I don't know, maybe reality set in. I thought, how will I, how will I support her, mm-hmm. and how will I raise a family and support them? Mm-hmm. Uh, if the New Yorker magazine pays, you know, dollar fifty a line, <laughs> and that's like the pinnacle, um, uh, how would I support anyone uh, yeah. writing poetry? So I thought oh, I'll go to law school. It's the same. It's yeah. words. It's reading. It's writing. It's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. It's very different. So that's why when I'm done practicing law, I still write. Yeah. Yeah, your other. Your other life. <laughs> My other life. Other, other version of you. Right. Yeah. That fragment of the other version of you. So who knows? <laughs> Maybe I'm at that point where I can put put behind me practicing law and yeah? do something. Mm-hmm. Just write. Why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Start a podcast. <laughs> I found writing too difficult or too much work to edit and everything. So I will do that too. But this is a good start as well. All right. Thanks for listening to Double Cuzzies, where we're cousins and friends, but most importantly, we're family. Bye. Bye.